Welcome to Now Appalachian, hosted by author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. And now, Appalachian. And hello, friends. We welcome you once again to an all-new episode of Now Appalachia, broadcast and heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue to profile the outstanding authors and publishers with connections to the Appalachian region and look at and see how the region has influenced and impacted their work and continues to impact their work. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us. As we are talking history, we are talking nonfiction writing and nonfiction work, and we're also talking about uh, the period uh, prior to World War II up through World War II and 1945. And we're doing that today uh, with a terrific author who has a great new book out called Paper Bullets, Two Artists Who Risked Their Lives to Defy the Nazis. And our guest today is author and professor of history, Jeff Jackson, who is a professor of history at Rhodes College. He's an expert on European history and culture. He's also the author of the book Paris Underwater, How the City of Light Survived the Great Flood of 1910. And he's also the author of the book Making Jazz French, Music and Modern Life in Interwar Paris. He's appeared in documentary films and has also helped develop uh, the program for PBS's great performances, Harlem in Montemarte, a Paris jazz story. And we are delighted to have uh, Jeff with us today to talk to us about his outstanding new book, which uh, really takes us into a period of history that we all are familiar with, but maybe into a story that we're not all familiar with. So, Jeff, welcome to Now Appalachia. Welcome to the program. Good to have you here. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, this book, particularly the two characters that we follow, because you introduced us to them really pretty early on in the story. And uh, one of them is a writer and photographer, Lucy Schwab, and uh, illustrator, uh, and I hope I get this right, uh, Suzanne Mallerbe. Uh, modern readers, though, probably know them by their adopted names. Uh, Lucy Schwab published books under the name uh, Claude Cahoon, and uh, Malherbe uh, took on the pseudonym Marcel Moore, so people may be familiar with them uh, from their adopted names. But uh, these are two women who uh, not only uh, were friends and grew up kind of um, uh, in the 1920s and early 30s as daughters of wealthy, prominent residents uh, in a city called uh, Nantes, Fr uh, Western France, Fr Western French city of Nantes, but these two women were also lovers, and so they have a really interesting history. One of the things I, I really like about what you do early on in the book is introduce us to them, but you also do a great job of kind of setting the scene for us for what uh, 1920s and 1930s Paris was like, uh, particularly for these two women who were lesbians, and these two women in terms of what was going on uh, in terms of the nightlife and the cafes and everything that we typically think of when we think about Paris. So can you talk to us a little bit about uh, these two women, their friendship, uh, the time period in which they were growing up prior to when the Germans uh, and Hitler began taking over Europe? Yeah, so the book really starts uh, when they arrive in Paris, um, right after World War I. And as you say, they're, they're, they come from wealthy families, they're daughters of, of wealth. Um, Lucy's father was a newspaper editor and owner, and, and uh, Suzanne's father was a, a prominent uh, doctor and head of the medical school um, where they grew up. And so they leave that behind, and they go to Paris, and they go to Paris because they really want to be artists, they really want to be part of that creative class, that creative set. Um, and Paris is really the place to do it. 
Lucy has an uncle who's already a famous writer and his wife is a, is a well-known actress of the day. So they've got some entree, they've got some inns um, in Paris. Um, and so they moved there as young women right after the war. So the war had opened up a lot of opportunities for women in particular. Um, so a lot of women were actually sort of taking on new social roles and, and moving to the capital. Um, and in that sense, they were different. But I think in some ways um, they were different uh, than a lot of other people because as you say, they were, they were a couple. Uh, they had already fallen in love by this point. They'd been together for a number of years. Um, and so it wasn't just the artistic scene that they were plugging into, but it was also uh, kind of the lesbian scene and, and, um, and some of the nightlife that was associated with that. Um, but when they, when they get to Paris, you know, it really does sort of open up a, a, a new set of friends, a new set of, of connections for them. They meet other artists, they meet other lesbian couples, they meet uh, people, and it really sort of opens their world. They begin to sort of uh, think about art in different ways, think about life in different ways. And Paris also becomes the place that they, they become um, politically engaged too. I mean, they, they had already sort of thought about politics earlier on, but Paris really is the place um, because by 1922, Mussolini's already in power. So fascism is already on the rise. Um, and that's something that, that begins to concern them and they start to get involved in politics um, and, and Paris allows them to be able to do that too. And you talk about fascism spreading throughout Europe with Mussolini taking power in 1922. You kind of take us uh, into a different perspective in the book around 1937, because that is when Lucy and Suzanne moved to Jersey, which is uh, uh, on the Chanel Islands to escape sort of political persecution and anti-Semitism. Um, and we learned that um, uh, we learned that uh, Suzanne's father uh, was was Jewish. Um, tell us a little bit about when they make that move. Um, to Jersey, what was the environment like? What was the city like? What what new place were they relocating to prior to uh, that widely spread uh, fascism that took place? Yeah, so that that move is a really important part of the story um, because when they moved to Jersey in 1937, it's there's sort of a push and a pull. On the one hand, they're being uh, drawn there; they're being pulled to Jersey. Uh, which is one of the Channel Islands in the English Channel. It's one of seven, seven islands. Um, folks may have heard of Jersey or Guernsey are sort of the two biggest islands. Um, but they're pulled there because it's a place that they know. They've vacationed there over the years. It's a lovely place. I spent some time on Jersey when I was doing the research for this book, and I, I understand why they would have wanted to move there. It's a lovely island. Um, it's, um, they, there's the, the house that they ended up buying has a beach right out in front of it. Uh, it's very picturesque. It's, it's a very calm place. And Lucy had a lot of chronic illnesses. So for her, this was kind of a way to, you know, kind of be in a, a better uh, environment, just more peaceful, more, uh, more healthy, hopefully for her. Um, and like I said, it was familiar. They had been there over the years on vacation. The push, though, the push away from Paris was the fact that Paris was becoming more and more politically polarized. And fascism had a lot to do with that. Other things did as well. I mean, people were literally fighting in the streets um, in Paris by the, the mid-1930s uh, between the far left and the far right. So fascist groups, communist groups, uh, and others. Um, and there was also a lot of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism on the rise very much in France. Um, and had been since the late 19th century. And, and Lucy herself and her family had been a victim of some of that anti-Semitism back in the, uh, around the turn of the century, what was known as the Dreyfus Affair, this very famous uh, anti-Semitic episode that takes place. Um, and so she had already experienced that. And then to see it come, out, come up again in the 1930s, I think that was another factor that was really sort of pushing them out of Paris and out of France. 
um, it was uh, so it was really sort of a two-pronged thing or two two dynamics at work the push and the pull when they go to Jersey you know as I say it's a it's it's a quiet place it's a lovely place they expect to live out their days there I think they really thought this would be a place where they could live and, and do their art and and enjoy and they come into some family money Suzanne's mother had recently passed away so she had inherited some some money so that allowed them to do this they were never really starving artists uh, <laughs> you know I talk about them as as part of the Parisian art scene, but they never were starving artists because they always did have family money. Um, and so that allowed them to, to make this move to Jersey. But they didn't realize, of course, that um, only just a few years after they moved to Jersey, um, this, this wonderful place, that it would be taken over by the Nazis. And so the, the islands, the Channel Islands, are the only bits of British soil that are taken over by uh, by the German army. And so they find themselves in a, a very different kind of situation than what they'd expected to find. And I love how you described there in 1940 when the first bombs fell on the Channel Islands, 180 bombs, uh, which doesn't seem like a lot, but when you, when you read the descriptions of those islands in your book, and if you look at them on a map, uh, they aren't that big. And to have 180 bombs dropped on that set of islands at one time uh, is truly a catastrophic event. And then all of a sudden, Lucy and Suzanne kind of have to make a shift, and they start becoming part of the resistance. As you mentioned, they, they left Paris because fascism was on the rise. They had a few peaceful years there uh, in the Channel Islands. Um, but then all of a sudden, uh, things have changed. The, bomb, the bombs have stopped, and they become a part of the resistance. And there's one thing I, I love that, they, that, that you described that they did, uh, and, and you could uh, illuminate this a little bit more, but um, they went around and twisted road signs uh, the wrong way because the Germans that had invaded the islands or were settling on the islands were still trying to get their bearings. And so what uh, Lucy and Suzanne did was turn the road signs around to try to get them confused. That was one of the ways that they uh, staked out a resistance. So uh, as, as we look at that, that example and we think about them as, as two women in these circumstances, why did they feel a need to be a part of the resistance? Because we know that um, in World War II during this period that there were some people that were part of the resistance. Some people, uh, especially in Germany, kind of stepped aside as the Nazis were doing what they were doing, even turning in Jewish people that would, had occupied Germany. So what made them decide to be a part of the resistance as opposed to sort of just stepping, stepping back and staying in the shadows? Well, that's a great question, and, and in many ways, that's the central question that I really try to grapple with in this book: is what you know, what is it that makes them a resistor, and what makes someone a resistor? Because most people don't resist during World War II, or really in any situation like that, right? I mean, I'll, I sometimes say to my students, you know, how many of you think you'd be part of the resistance, you know, if you lived in during World War II? And of course, most people raise their hand and sort of think, yeah, well, of course, I would have, you know, done the right thing and stood up. But in reality, very few people did and very few people would, right? It's much safer to either go along or to just sort of step aside and do nothing. Um, and I think uh, that was the same kind of question that they were faced with. They had to sort of decide, you know, what are we going to do uh, here? What are we gonna, what's our response going to be? For me, the answer to the question of why they become resistors really goes back to who they are and sort of their longer story. It's really about their kind of whole biography, which I try to tell I can't say that I tell their entire biography in the book, but I, I certainly try to make a link between what happens in their earlier years and what happens in that time on Jersey, because I don't think you just wake up one day and say, we're gonna resist, right? I think for, for me, what's, what's powerful about their story is that they had been lifelong resistors in many ways, um, as a lesbian couple, as avant-garde artists. 
um, in their politics in their Paris days. They had been sort of used to this idea of pushing back. If you look, and I talk about it in the book, their art is very, um, it's, they're often talked about as surrealists. Um, they're certainly engaging in their art with questions about gender and, and sexual identity and what, what do women look like? What is femininity? You know, Lucy often appears in those photographs with her head shaved, maybe dressed as a man uh, or dressed in a very gender ambiguous kind of way. So they were pushing boundaries of all sorts throughout uh, much of their lives. So that by the time they get to Jersey, uh, in some ways, what they do, that, that work that they do on Jersey really comes out of who they are. It comes out of, of years worth of practice, you might say. Um, and at first, you know, they, Lucy in particular is the one who really wants to sort of do something. They don't, she doesn't know exactly what she wants to do at first. Um, she has to sort of convince Suzanne. Suzanne is always described as the more practical one, the down-to-earth one, the one who really sort of has her feet on the ground. Lucy's the kind of dreamer. She's the kind of, uh, you know, the, the idealist. Um, and so it, it, to me, they really, they had, had to take both of those characteristics. It had to take Lucy, the sort of idea dreamer and Suzanne, the kind of practical, you know, how to person in order to, to do any of this resistance in the first place. But once Lucy convinces Suzanne, they start off small things like you said, twisting the road signs or, uh, or they, Lucy comes up with this, she calls it our jingle. Um, it's this phrase, you know, ona endo, which means without end. And they start writing this phrase without end, and they write it on, on cigarette packages that they find on the ground, or they write it, they graffiti it on the walls. And what they're trying to tell these soldiers is that this war is not going to end. <laughs> this is a war without end. And who, who's the victim, right? It's really you, the soldier. Um, so really, from their very earliest days, they start speaking to the soldiers um, to try to, to, to tell them, you know, that something is wrong with this scenario. And that's really where that resistance begins. And then, of course, it, it blossoms from there. Very good. We're speaking with uh, Tennessee author Jeff Jackson today here on Now Appalachia. We're talking to him about his new book, Paper Bullets, Two Artists Who Risked Their Lives to Defy the Nazis. And Jeff, we'll come back to uh, the book in just a couple of minutes. But I wanted to ask you uh, uh, just a couple of questions about uh, your process and, and research. And then I have a question about historical figures that I wanted to ask you. But okay. talk to us a little bit about the, the research that went into this. Because when I was doing some research on my own preparing for our interview today, I was surprised to learn that uh, Suzanne had a book called Disavows uh, that kind of explained some of the what was going on to her uh, in this process. And there were uh, some other later writings um, as well that were out there. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the, the, those works, the, the, the other writings that you found about um, the book Disavows, how helpful that was to you? And, and you mentioned that you actually got to go to, to, uh, to France to do some research as well. What other types of research were helpful to you in putting this book together? So this book, I, I went back uh, and sort of calculated how long I worked on this book. It turns out it was seven years uh, in the making <laughs> from, from beginning to end, which um, uh, is the result of many things, not the least of which is the, the fact that it, it takes a long time to really get in the archives and to really um, dig through a lot of this stuff. So it's a combination of archival work, um, both uh, on the island of Jersey, uh, did some research in London as well, uh, did some research at Yale University because they have a big cache of documents uh, from Lucy and Suzanne. Um, fortunately, Jersey, the Jersey archive also has a lot of their stuff digitized, and so I was able to do some of that online too. That, that certainly is helpful. Um, there's also some published work, like you're saying, actually it's Lucy uh, had published that book, Disavowals, 
um, under her under her artistic name Claude Cahoon. Um, and that that was a, an earlier book. That was sort of a sort of her memoirs or sort of you know kind of her young memoirs of her young life. Um, so before they moved to Jersey um, and some of their artistic work. Um, and then after uh, after they had both passed away and were sort of rediscovered by in the 1980s, really. Um, there was a French author who kind of wrote a biography um, and then published a lot of Lucy's work posthumously, uh, heavily edited and heavily selected. Um, so I had this kind of combination of archival work and published work, uh, and then some scholarship as well. Most of the stuff that's been written about them from a scholarly point of view really is about their artwork. It's about this sort of uh, amazing photography uh, that they did in Paris in the 1920s, 1930s. You can find lots of stuff on the web. You can find stuff on my website. You can just Google it and find lots of their photographs. Um, and you can see the kinds of amazing and sort of, you know, um, in some cases, shocking photographs that they were doing, photo montage, other things. So a lot of the scholarship really is about that work, um, but very little about the, the war experience. And so what I was really trying to do is just piece it all together um, and, uh, and, and really also fill in the gaps that that even though people had written about their artistic work, they really hadn't written about their wartime work. So I was kind of building off of what scholars had written about their earlier lives and then uh, trying to, to flesh out the, the work that they had done during the war. That's really where the archival material became the most helpful because I think that really kind of uh, allowed me to, to hear their voices and to really kind of get the story. Um, but it really was like putting, a piece, uh, putting the pieces of a puzzle together. Um, you have to really sort of figure out, you know, what is the narrative here out of all of these seemingly random scraps of paper, you know, how do you tell a story out of that? Um, and it's, it's no easy task for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I love to hear uh, nonfiction writers, especially talk about the research and the process of putting all that together. And, you know, you and I were talking about this before we came uh, uh, on the air with our interview, we were talking about Eric Larson's The Splendid and the Vile, which is a book I read prior to reading yours. And um, he had a quote, uh, and I'm probably not going to get this correct, but someone asked him one time about how does he pick the subjects that he writes about? And he says, I look for the stories that have not been told through history. And he wrote The Splendid in the Vile because there's not much research done or not much scholarship done on Churchill's first year as prime minister in 1940. And so he felt like that was an interesting uh, period to talk about. But I wanted to ask you as a, as a history professor at Rhodes College and as a historian, uh, the challenge of trying to tell a story or find a story or um, think about telling a story that hasn't been told. And you and I were kind of joking about how Abraham Lincoln. I feel like every time I walk into a bookstore, I see a new book out about Abraham Lincoln, despite the fact I've read dozens of books on Lincoln. And I feel like as a reader that everything's been told about Lincoln, but historians <laughs> still find new things to tell us about Lincoln. And I was wondering uh, the challenge that you face as a historian and a writer in trying to tell a story or, um, you know, in your in your book, uh, Paper Bullets, kind of going over well-trodden ground in terms of World War II, but finding a story that hadn't been told, what kind of challenges there are in that? Yeah, it's a great question. It really is a challenge, and, and I feel like uh, in many ways, all the books that I've written have been things that I kind of uh, stumbled upon, just sort of good luck, you know, uh, was able to, to come across uh, either a story that hadn't been told before or, as you say, a new angle on an old story. I mean, I think you're right. There, there are so many books about World War II, but I've, one of the things that I've talked about with this book and people have said to me, you know, this is the World War II story we've never heard before. You know, how is that possible? How is it possible after all these years and all the many books that have been written in scholarship that there's a World War II story that we haven't heard before? 
Well, it turns out there is, <laughs> yeah, but it really requires that kind of listening. You know, it's, it requires kind of keeping your ear to the ground, uh, keeping your eyes open, and, and also uh, some good luck too. Um, and I, I feel like I've been lucky. Uh, as we were talking before we went on the air, I was telling you that really was the one who told me about this, uh, this story. My wife is an art historian, and so she had known about the, the, photo the, the photography that Lucy and Suzanne had done under their artistic names, Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore, um, and had taught them in her classes and things before, but, um, but she didn't really know much about the wartime experience because really that hadn't been written about. So we were talking about it one night and, and she said, you should really look at these artists. And she started showing me the photos and she knew, she knew something. She, she said, I think they were resistors in the war or something like that. And so I said, oh, well, you know, I want to find out more about that. And then you start looking and then you, as you read, you realize, well, no one has told this part of the story. You know, you sort of have to figure out where, where are the gaps, right? And, and that requires kind of just paying close attention to what, what pieces of the narrative have been skipped over or, or have just not been filled in. Um, and so in my case, it was a combination of, of good luck that my wife told me about this. Um, and, and, you know, kind of once I started doing some digging, finding out that really uh, there was something missing from that story. So it's, a, you know, it's, I, I've been very fortunate to, <laughs> to find some of those stories out there. That's great. That's great. Now, this question doesn't have anything really to do with your book or with research, but I always love to ask historians this question. Who is one of your favorite historical figures from history? Uh, oh, I wish you'd given me a heads up on that one. I <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't even know if I can answer that question because there's so many there's so many stories and what let me put it this way one of the things that i try to do in my classes when i teach is i try to i try to get down to ground level and i tell my students let's look at this sort of from the perspective of sort of the lived experience um and so in a way i try to avoid not totally you can't totally avoid but i try to not focus on the famous figures you know the lincolns right the people are that sort of level but rather to kind of get down in kind of the ordinary people so um i'm gonna i'm gonna evade your question by <laughs> by, <laughs> by saying that you know I, I to me if if it if if there was gonna if i was gonna be able to pick one person it would probably be somebody nobody else had ever heard of it would probably be somebody at ground level um i think those are the stories that to me really help me as a historian and I think also help students when I'm teaching to sort of get inside the minds of other people right to sort of inhabit the skin of other people living in the past and that that to me is a big part of what the historians doing very good we're talking with Jeff Jackson here on now Appalachia he's a professor of history at Rhodes College in Memphis Tennessee and also the author of a terrific new book on a new story that you probably have not heard about before regarding World War II it's called paper bullets two artists who risked their lives to defy the Nazis. And we've been talking a lot about Lucy and Suzanne, and we'll go back to their story uh, here now because uh, you take us in the third part of sort of act three of your book to uh, some really interesting and I think difficult scenes, but you tell it so well. And that is when Lucy and Suzanne are arrested in 1944. And you kind of build us up to that because you were talking about uh, the defiance that they did and the resistance that they were doing earlier. I loved how they had created some photo montages that were sort of critical of the Germans and what was going on. And they would put them into magazines that the soldiers would buy uh, as sort of uh, establishing their resistance, which I thought was great. But, but they're arrested in 1944 and they spend months in prison and ultimately uh, were sentenced to death 
uh, before the release uh, after uh, the war ended in 1945. Can you talk to us a little bit about those days? Because I really think that that's some of the, the most poignant writing in the story is you really take us inside to what they were experiencing, being arrested, being in prison, and the ways that they had to kind of creatively decide and come up with ways to communicate with one another. Can you tell us a little bit about that period of their lives and that period of the book? Yeah, before I do that, let me let me just kind of finish one thought kind of that, that I sort of started but didn't quite finish in the, the last segment. And just in terms of getting them to prison, because, you know, we were talking about turning street signs the wrong way. And the, like you said, the photo montage. But, um, um, you know, the, the paper bullets of the title really has to do this is why they're ultimately arrested. Right. There's, these are notes that they write. Um, the, that phrase paper bullets refers to. Um, notes that they end up writing to the Nazis. And, and they do this in, as a German soldier. Basically what they do is they sort of um, take on the persona of a German soldier and they start writing these notes. And the notes that they write to the Germans are notes that are addressed in German. They write them in German to the soldiers. And they basically say, you know, why are you here? Maybe, you know, shouldn't you go home? Shouldn't we be back in Germany? So in other words, they're trying to sort of get inside the minds of these German soldiers and basically undermine their morale and get them to think twice about why they're occupying this island of Jersey. Jersey and all the Channel Islands were strategically very important. They were part of what Hitler called the Atlantic Wall. Um, and this was a series of fortifications uh, that, you know, to, to prevent Allied attack and, uh, and, and to hold the continent from, from the Allies. And so uh, the, the, the islands were really important. And so the idea of undermining German morale in this really strategically important area was unacceptable from the German perspective. And so that's what ultimately gets them arrested, right? It's, it's, it's not just that they're turning signs around or doing, you know, the, these small acts that I was describing a minute ago, they escalate um, and they escalate into this whole note writing campaign. And, and again, in the voice of a German soldier. So, um, so once the Germans basically figure this out, that, that these women have been distributing notes. They, they, don't, they, don't know, they don't necessarily believe at the beginning that they were writing the notes. They think that maybe it was part of a bigger conspiracy. So they want to interrogate them and, and try to figure out, you know, who else was involved in this. In particular, was, were there any soldiers involved in this? Because they write these perspectives, they sign their notes as the soldier with no name. So they, they're pretending to be this soldier. And so the Germans originally think, well, maybe there actually is a German soldier who's working with them, or maybe even a cabal of German soldiers, a whole group of, you know, conspiracy. Um, so that's another reason why they're arrested, is to try to interrogate them to figure what's, what's really going on here. Um, but once they're, once they're in prison, um, you know, this is part of what's fascinating about that, that part of the story, is that they continue this resistance work. <laughs> they don't let up. Um, for the eight months that they're in prison, uh, first of all, they're separated, put in solitary confinement. So they've, you know, they've been together their whole lives. They've been a loving couple, couple their whole lives. And now they're separated really for the first time in their lives. And, um, but they, they end up um, passing notes uh, behind bars. They end up befriending other prisoners um, and, and sharing notes to them. They, they, they also end up befriending the Germans themselves. Um, to me, one of the most remarkable parts of the story were their interactions with both the German guards and other German prisoners. So there were prisoner, German soldiers who had been arrested for mutiny um, and were behind bars. Um, and then there were the guards who were guarding the prison. And they end up getting to know all of these men um, and, you know, and having um, the fellow prisoners 
the guards, it's, it's hard to say that they become friends with the guards, but they certainly develop a kind of working relationship with the guards. The, the, the guards are not cruel to them. They don't beat them. They're, you know, it's not the sort of what you expect from what I sometimes call the History Channel you know, version of a Nazi prison, right? It's not a, a horrible experience in that sense, although there is definitely a psychological torment that they go through because they, they literally think every day is their last day. They wake up every morning thinking today's gonna be the day that we're, that we're gonna be executed. Um, and yet, at the same time, they are sort of talking to these guards and getting information from them and, and even sort of, you know, finding these guards to be, to be friendly to them in many ways and helping them, bringing them an extra blanket, bringing them extra food. So um, it's a fascinating sort of experience that they have and certainly one that doesn't match up with, you know, our kind of ready expectations about what, you know, what, uh, what it was like to be imprisoned, you know, in a German prison during the war. And, you know, despite all of that, one of the things I also love is, is how Suzanne always is kind of looking out for and taking care of Lucy. And you write about in page 202 how uh, Suzanne encouraged Lucy to tap on the pipe above her head after lights out to let her know that all was well. Um, the letters between them and the notes that were exchanged between them, uh, all of them addressed Lucy as Amour. Uh, a lot of them wished her good night. Um, you know, they maintain that their love and devotion to each other uh, through these difficult circumstances. And, and I wanted to ask you sort of a, a big picture, picture question about them. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard from, from LGBTQ readers uh, who look at these two characters and say, oh my goodness, this is, you know, what we think about all, all the, the rights that LGBTQ uh, peoples have struggled with uh, over the years and, and the strides that have been made, although there's still a lot more work to be done here in recent years. But here we are in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and we have these two women who are committed to one another and love with one another, don't lose that commitment and that love. And, and almost, um, you know, I, I could see uh, people looking at them as icons almost, historical mm -hmm. icons for uh, the LGBTQ movement today. And I was wondering if, if is that a big takeaway uh, that we learn sort of outside from their, their story, sort of this uh, on the periphery kind of takeaway, uh, that these two women are kind of icons for, for this period in history and for this a group of individuals, or it is that just something that uh, is a smaller part of their larger story? What, what, did you, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a, I think it's definitely one of the takeaways. I, I don't want to say it's the only one, but I think certainly a lot of folks in the LGBTQ community have looked at them, um, and hopefully in reading this book, we'll continue to look at them and see them in a new light as, as heroes, as figures who were willing to stand up for um, for what they believed in, and also really that all of this came out of their relationship. I mean, I don't think either of them could have done this work on their own. I think that really only this this resistance work, and indeed their artwork in the in the 20s and 30s in Paris, really only makes sense to think of as a collaborative work. That, that, that they're always working together, supporting each other, helping each other, inspiring each other, protecting each other, and loving each other, and that that's what really makes this work, all of this work possible. But I think it's also, um, you know, something, a story that, that everybody can, can connect with as well, because it raises these kind of questions about, you know, what, what does it take to be someone who does stand up for what you believe in? And what does it take um, for any of us, uh, if we find ourselves in an extraordinary situation, you know, to, um, to, to take that step and to, and to, you know, resist, right, when, it's, when we feel called upon to do that? 
And like I said earlier, you know, we don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to become a resistor today. That very that maybe sometimes happens, but rarely happens. Um, so it is interesting and inspiring, I think, to see, you know, what are the patterns there, right? What are the, what are the bigger stories and, and what are the ways that, you know, that maybe this can make us think about the kinds of things in our own lives that we, you know, what are we willing to tolerate and what are we willing to draw the line on and say, no, let's, I, you know, I, I want to push back against that. And then I guess another big takeaway for me too, kind of going back to the question about the war itself, uh, and maybe this is kind of a historian's take on this as well, is to say, um, you know, what happens when you start telling these big stories like the story of World War II, but telling it from a different perspective, right? When you add more voices in, then the story just gets richer. Um, and so I think, you know, here's a, a case of two women who have been largely overlooked um, in a lot of different ways, overlooked because they're women, overlooked because they're lesbians, overlooked because they were in a part of the, of the, of Europe that was, it's not often talked about, you know, people don't typically talk about the Channel Islands and the war. So for so many reasons, they were sort of excluded. But what happens when you bring their story back in? Um, and I think it, it enriches that, uh, enriches that larger story of the war really for everybody. So Jeff, in our final moments with you today here on Now Appalachia, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about uh, your work as a historian, about uh, paper bullets, or about any of the other works that you've done, Paris Underwater, or Making Jazz French, how can they get in contact with you, first of all, and then where can they get copies of Paper Bullets? Uh, well, Paper Bullets is available everywhere. Um, Certainly, you can you can purchase it on uh, online. It was the best book of the month, one of the books of the month on Apple Books for the month of November when it was released. Um, I always encourage people to support their local booksellers, uh, and so you can certainly find it uh, here in Memphis at Novel Books and in Nashville at Parnassus Books and a number of other places around. Um, um, if you want to find out more about uh, about me and about my work, you can go to my website jeffreyhjackson.com. Um, you can read about my, my biography. You can read about some of my other work um, as well and, and some reviews and things about paper bullets. Um, and then, of course, you can also find out more about me on the Rhodes College website, rhodes.edu, um, in the Department of History. We've been talking with Rhodes College history professor Jeff Jackson here today on Now Appalachia. His great new book, Paper Bullets, Two Artists Who Risk Their Lives to Defy the Nazis, as you will learn more about Lucy and Suzanne, who we've been talking a lot about, uh, and their story. It's beautifully done, well-researched, beautifully written, and there are some just very tense moments, as we've been talking about, uh, when Lucy and Suzanne get arrested and their experiences uh, being prisoners and what they go through in that experience. But it's a wonderful book, and again, it tells a unique and fascinating story that we have not heard before about World War II. And Jeff, congratulations on the book. It's a terrific, terrific read and a real great addition, I think, to this period in history. So great work on this and congratulations. And as you keep writing and keep getting new books published about World War II or other periods in history, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. So thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. We also want to take this moment as we finish up here on Now Appalachia to give a special shout out and thanks to the executive producer of Now Appalachia. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate all the work that Pam does behind the scenes to make these broadcasts of Now Appalachia and all of the other programs that you hear on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network possible. So Pam, we want to thank you so much for that. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.
That's going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia. Please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next. Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.